Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading this morning is from Colossians. It's Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. We're now going to read the Third Way Creed, so you can follow along if you feel called, um, and read out loud with me. Um, As a community of the third way, we choose to value empathy and compassion over certainty and absolute agreement. We commit to uphold the God-given dignity and intrinsic value of all humanity, regardless of others' convictions or beliefs. We will find the courage to challenge all forms of communication that foster disdain, violence, and contempt. With a healthy awareness of our own bias, we vow to form our beliefs in the counsel of scripture, a dependence on the Holy Spirit, and most importantly, in following the way of Christ. We vow to pursue clarity around our own convictions while respecting others who faithfully disagree. We commit to extend compassion where there's suffering, curiosity where there's difference, and belonging where there's isolation. Thank you very much. As we were going through this series called A Third Way, we wrote this creed in part to just put flesh and bones around what does it mean to actually practice this with one another. And so we wrote that creed not to mandate that you believe the same thing or do it. We just, we just wanted to have a little bit more clarity on that. So thank you. We're going to be reading that each week in this series together with one another. Um, so I want to begin with starting off with a poll of sorts. I'm going to throw a couple different options out here, and I want to give you guys the opportunity of saying if you're for option A or option B. Okay, so let's start off with an easy one. Raising Cane's or Chick-fil-A? Option A or option B? Option A? Yeah. Option B? Okay, fair enough. Um, How about this? Over the roll or under the roll? All right, here we go. Where are my option A people? Option B, people? Okay. (laughs) You're the perfect person for that, Anna. You were just like, oh, I got exposed. (laughs) Oh, that makes me so happy. (laughs) Am I alone in this? Okay. All right, here we go. Option A, option B. Manchak, Menchaka. All right, option A, where are you at? Option B? Okay, yeah, everyone's now nervous for option B, so I see that. Okay, for those who are uh, kind of my generation, there was this big debate, are you on Team Rachel or Team Ross during, during their breakup? Okay, where's my Team Rachel? 
Team Ross? Okay, yeah, and I should remember this line. It was a break, right? Okay, this isn't really option A or B, but we're gonna make this a little bit, because I wanna make sure, for those who grew up with friends, I wanna, wanna get a little bit younger. All right, Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, or Slytherin? Who's got Gryffindor? Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, Slytherin? <laughs> Who has no clue what we're talking about? All right, they're my people. All right, lastly, how about this? Cilantro or nope? Where are my cilantro people? Where's my nope people? All right. So it's interesting, there's, it's so easy in this world to like break us down into option A or B and that kind of thing. Uh, but there are less humorous binary options that we find at play in our society, in our day and age, that, and we know them well. Conservative or liberal? Affirming or non-affirming? Vaccinated or anti-vax? Blue or red? And on and on it goes. And it seems like there's some, so much ink lately that's been spilled around, not only is this world seeming like more and more polarized, but the, the amount of disdain that, that is underneath our antagonisms just keeps growing and growing and growing. This often feels really, really exceptional, but to be honest, this, is, this tension is nothing new. Jesus came at a time similar to this. Jesus came at a time in a culture where there was great division, there was ethnic and racial division in the Middle East at that time. There was great religious division and contention against who is doing it right, who is more faithful to God, to Yahweh. And so there was this uh, religious division and disdain that was taking place. There was also division around how friendly people can be towards Rome. Should we try to stand against Rome? Should we actually try to fight Rome? Or should we accommodate to the Roman way? And what did Jesus do? When you read the Gospels, it seems like Jesus just walked in and out of debates, sometimes aligning with a certain position, and then the next minute criticizing it. It, feel, it seems like he was just following a different compass through the experiences of that day, through the conflicts of that day. And Jesus didn't fall prey to the pressure that he was often confronted with of either-or options. Sometimes when he was provided with two different options, Jesus would counter by saying, well, there's actually something that's more important. There's a third option. There's a different way forward. <clears throat> and because Jesus didn't care to cover himself with the banners of that day, you know, the contentious banners of this tribe versus this tribe, Jesus was quite comfortable not covering himself with the banners of that day. People eventually turned on him. That's one of the main reasons why Jesus was killed. Because he didn't choose to be on this side or that side. And because of that clarity, because he, was, because he was just ambiguously walking through this life, following a different thing, there was a sense of threat that Jesus presented. And I wonder how Jesus would navigate the culture that we live in today. I wonder how Jesus would walk into the conflicts and the debates that are just at the surface in our society the divisive issues of our day, challenging and just speaking to the different tribes that we seem to have entrenched in. Furthermore, I wonder how we would respond when we see Jesus not aligning with our tribe. I wonder how we would respond if Jesus had words of criticism about the side that we believed that was faithful. 
There's this obscure and powerful little story tucked away in Joshua 5. For those who aren't familiar with Joshua, this was right after Moses had led the people out of captivity uh, in Egypt. They went through the wilderness. They had this long experience of learning to trust God. And God had promised, if you learn to trust me, I'm going to give you a promised land, a, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. God literally led them like in this presence of fire and cloud, and the people had to learn to trust God. And so here they are, Joshua's now, now taking over the mantle of leadership from Moses, and they're now entering into this promised land. Finally, we are here. And they get to this place called Jericho. They're about to attack the people of Jericho. And just before that, this bizarre moment takes place. This is in Joshua 5. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a, a, a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went down, uh, Joshua went up to ask him, and, uh, and, and he asked, are you uh, for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servants? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. If there was any time where it was clear that someone was on God's side, wouldn't it be this moment? Like this whole process, 40 years of learning how to be God's people to step into this promised experience, and here we are. And Joshua confronts this angel and said, all right, so whose side are you on? Are you on our side or their side? And notice how the angel responds. Neither. It's almost as if the messenger of God wants to say, we don't belong to you. Like we don't belong to you in this us versus them, you would expect that the angel would say, of course we're with you. What do you think we've been doing? I'm coming from God. But the answer was neither. It seems as if we need to be incredibly cautious to believe that God will be co-opted into our agendas. God will not be a plaything in the tribalism of us versus them. God will not care to be just another endorsement on the banners that we carry into this world. And it feels like the same question that Joshua posed the angel is the same question that many times our society posed to each of us. So, which side are you on? Are you with us or are you with them? Oftentimes, neutrality doesn't feel like an option. You have to pick a side, these binary options. Oftentimes, though, they fail us. Why? Because our greatest loyalty is to a different king and to a different kingdom. But I know that how easily we are susceptible to the temptation of tribalism. 17 years ago, I moved to Austin, and I moved to Austin with a group of really, really good friends from college, and we hadn't seen each other in years, but we all decided, like, we're moving to Austin on this year, and we called ourselves the Lords of A-Town. The, there's this documentary, The Lords of Dogtown, came out. We just called ourselves the Lords of A-Town. We use this Yahoo Messenger thing. This was before, like, group text was a thing. I'm dating myself, but uh, we would... Every single night, it was a different adventure. We did it right. Every night, we would go out and have fun, make experiences, find trouble, and just have a blast. One night, we decided, <clears throat> let's do something different. 
let's play kickball. We haven't played kickball in forever. And so we met up at this park, and we just randomly paired off. All right, so team one, team two. We, 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 you know how it starts with a group of friends who are competitive, like I'm competitive. Starts off like a little joke here and there, a little back and forth joke. And then the digs start getting in a little deeper. You're like, ah, oh, that was kind of a personal thing. And then all of a sudden, you start fighting over the rules, right? You know, you're like, oh, oh, actually, no, 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 we don't play like that. And then I just remember things started escalating more and more and more. And then all of a sudden, we were like talking to each other like, guys, we got to win. Like, we've got to win. And I remember this one moment very clearly uh, that my roommate at the time uh, had kicked a ball into the outfield. And as he was rounding first, and I was playing first, uh, he saw a bottle of my last beer uh, was sitting on the side, and he decided to look at me and kick it over as he was running by. And I was excited about that beer. And I was really, really frustrated. And as they kept rounding, I remember yelling at him, like, probably something like, uncool, bro, what are you doing? I didn't know it was the outfielder had chunked the kickball right at me because I was, guess it was the cutoff person. And I turned perfectly in time to be impaled in the face with this gigantic red kickball. I mean, it was so squarely on my nose. Have you had this experience lately? I hadn't. But when you get hit in the nose and you can't stop from crying, like you're not, I'm not crying, but I just, my eyes are just watering and I think I, my nose might be bleeding. So Rob is rounding third. I really want to peg him out, right? But the ball has hit my face and went back into outfield. And the person who was over there was my girlfriend, Jen, who was laughing so hard she didn't care about throwing me the ball. And so now I'm running with, like, trying to see with... And it's, it was just, it got worse and worse and worse. At the end of the night, we just stopped playing, and both teams just went our different direction. We didn't say bye to each other. We all went to dinner, like, different places. It took a couple days for us to be like, are we cool? Like, you know... And it's funny, like, it took, a, it took days for us to be able to laugh at it. But what, looking back at it is, and we don't all laugh about it, especially this guy named Mark, when they replay that moment when I get hit in the face with a ball. I didn't find it funny. Uh, but what it, it highlighted for me was how quickly, how quickly we can be susceptible to tribalism for us and them. How quickly these relationships, I mean, an hour and a half earlier, we, were, we chose to do this together, and we just randomly picked, okay, team one, team two. And within just a little bit, we were against one another. And we know that experience in our life. Many of us have experienced it too, these relationships that you have fostered where you feel like there's loyalty, where you have some depth, and there's foundation, and all of a sudden something happens, and you're cut loose. You find yourself on the outside of it. Or maybe you feel temptation to have that animosity and disdain towards one another. We've experienced that temptation to align with a position and rally against a common enemy. And sometimes the person that we have loved becomes that common enemy. It's a challenge for us. But as, as I've heard pastor and theologian David Fitch say recently, he talked about how this cultural moment we're living in has an enemy-making machine that's humming underneath the surface of our lives. It's like there's this, this underneath the surface of our lives, there's this machine that is just perfectly wired to create enemies amongst us and within us. So what are we to do in this moment? 
What are we to do in this moment when it's so easy for us to be clothed by the agenda, by the banners, by the disdain of our particular camps? Well, we need to remember the words that we found in Colossians that we heard just a little bit ago. Our job, I believe, is to pull off all of those banners that cover us and for us to be covered by something different. So here we are in the book of Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In the midst of the division and the strife that we have, I think our calling is to allow Christ to clothe us with something different, to clothe us with compassion, with kindness, to be people of great humility, to be people who are known of being gentle and patient, to be people who know what it's like to give and receive forgiveness, and above everything else, our job is to put on love, and somehow love is going to hold it all together in unity. This is the wrappings of what it means to be in Jesus' tribe. It's not based on positions, not based on contention. It's based on being people who've put on the covering of Christ, of Christ-likeness. Isn't it so obvious that one of the greatest ways in which the church can bear witness to Christ's kingdom is to be putting on humility and compassion, generosity and gentleness, patience and kindness. We need this not only for our demonstration to the world, but we also need this here with one another. I think this is pointing us to a different kind of unity. Two summers ago, I spent a week with this pastor and theologian named A.J. Sherrill. And along the week we were talking, he asked me to describe you. And I, I said, out of the many different things I, I love about you, one of the greatest gifts that I think we have as a church is we have a lot of different backgrounds. Like as collectively, we're not like just pulling from the same stream of Christianity that we're coming from all sorts of denominational backgrounds. There's some of us who, who are coming here with like hearts fully like ready for church. And there's some of us who are like tiptoeing through it going, I'm not sure if I still want to be connected to a church. And I was talking about it with him and I say, sometimes it feels like the diversity of, of our backgrounds, our convictions, our theology, whatnot, sometimes I feel like it's a huge, huge gift. And sometimes it's really challenging. Why? Because we don't all begin at the same page with every single thing. It's a challenge because there's some times where this, this identity of coming together in the midst of our diversity presents us an opportunity to have a different kind of unity. That person, A.J. Uh, Sherrill, he said, he shared a framework that for me has been something that has rung true. When we think of unity, so much of our focus is on the positions that we take. So check out this line. So our sense of unity can be, uh, be centered around a position. Like where do you stand on any given issue? Do you, are you here or are you here? Whether the spectrum of whatever it might be, a conservative, liberal, whatever it might be, we can plot ourselves somewhere on this line. We also know the people who are in relationship with, our friends or our family. We go, oh, I might be here, and I think they might be there. 
And it's really easy for us to simply categorize people based on the positions that, in which we take, based on that spectrum. And the interesting thing is that we have these mental boxes that we either consciously or subconsciously put one another in based on this kind of idea. It's like we, we can't let people be multifaceted. When I meet you, I'm always looking for clues of like, all right, which, which box am I going to put you in? <laughs> and I understand why sometimes we do this, but the problem is this is, ends up being a, a cultural culture built on positional sameness. Because what happens is we tend to gravitate to people who find themselves on the same point. Why? It's so comforting to find people who share the same point of view. You know you're not alone any longer. You can use the same vocabulary. You can stand up for the same issues. You can share the same articles with one another. Uh, You can get angry about, about the same things. And then slowly it becomes a sense of tribe, a sense of community. We feel a sense of unity. But then sometimes, even within that position, we splinter off into smaller groups of sameness. We see this in many churches. Churches will divide, and then they'll end up dividing over another thing and then another thing. And over and over again, we can find ourselves separating out into positional sameness. And to make matters worse, we are holding in our pockets algorithms on our devices, churning this out even more and more, specific to you and that position, maybe even to push you even further on in that position. Over and over again, it goes. And this can apply to our political climate. It can uh, apply to our, the racial tension that we are experiencing in this country. And in the church, we can fracture and split off in many different positions. Now, when this becomes how we perceive the world, this temptation takes over, this temptation to label one another. When I meet you, how quickly I just want to rush into labeling people. Labeling can simply turn into easy judgment, but the reality is is that people are more than positions. People are more than positions. The problem isn't that people um, aren't more than positions. It's the fact that sometimes you slap a label on someone and you got it wrong. Have you ever had that encounter where you like, you know someone and then all of a sudden they send you something over email or they say something, you're like, oh, I got to pull you out of this one box and put you in this other one. You know, like it's like, ah, and now I know. It's good to know. This type of living is fuel for the enemy making machine, as Fitch was talking about earlier, and it's active in our world. Because in place of label making, what if it, what if it, what if we could learn to be curious with one another. Rather than jumping to conclusions like, what if we actually heard someone say something and we actually stopped and said, can you share a little bit about how you got to that point of view? Or if it's within a fellowship of Christians, like, how does, so tell me, help me understand, how does the way of Jesus inform that point of view? And all of a sudden, when we get curious, we begin to realize that people are more than positions that people have life experiences, hurts, baggage. Maybe they have complexities in their own understanding. And when we're curious with one another, we humanize one another. We are more than positions. I love how the purveyor of positivity, Ted Lasso, he said, stay curious, not judgmental. I think that's a Walt Whitman uh, quote as well. But when we live into curiosity, what we learn is 
that when we were able to see that people are multifaceted, we remember that they're human. A.J. Sherrill, he wrote, the problem today is not that we have positions. The problem is that the positional axis is the dominant, even exclusive way we determine whether or not we can have unity with someone. It's not the problem that you have convictions and I have conviction. It's not the problem that we have core beliefs. But the problem is when we boil down all sense of unity based on positional sameness, same-mindedness, then we are, are losing another possibility of finding unity. But what if Jesus would show us that there is a different kind of unity? Rather than the horizontal line of unity, what if there is also a unity of posture? What if there is a, a vertical axis where at the top of it is curiosity? Could you go to the next slide? Thank you. Compassion, empathy, being inclusive, like making space for diversity, being curious. And towards the bottom of, of that posture line is being judgmental, distancing, being exclusive, being closed-minded. For me, it, the bottom part is where the enemy-making machine flourishes. It's where that takes place. In my, it's my belief that the church, by and large, has sought unity around positions. Here at this church, we use this word to describe the scripture. Here at this church, this is what we believe. If you want to grow into leadership, if you want to be a part of our community, you need to know that this is where we stand on all these given issues. Of course we welcome you, but eventually we want you to land here because that is where truth resides. But what if there's a different kind of unity? Again, I'm not saying we get rid of our convictions, but I'm saying what if we find a unity that goes deeper than positional sameness? Because how does the church stand in the middle of our society without falling prey to that enemy-making machine? How do we do that? How do, we, how do we stand with one another and learn that people can come to Scripture, can come to the way of Christ, and see things differently, not because they're closed-minded, not because they have been co-opted by other agendas, but because they see things differently? I believe that finding a unity of posture is inviting us to something deeper, where we're not falling prey to the antagonisms and the banner-making that's often prevalent in our world. I actually think the way in which we treat one another is just as important as what we believe. It is just as important. Why? Because we're called to clothe ourselves with Christ. In all of Jesus' wisdom, Jesus intentionally called together a bunch of disciples. He randomly said, all right, you, 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 you. But it wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just like, you know, like it was just someone won the lottery. In all of his wisdom, he gathered certain disciples together. And what we will find if we look at those disciples, they were all over the place on positional, on the positional spectrum. Not only does this display Christ is for anyone, but also that Jesus not only wanted to call disciples to him, but he wanted to call them to one another to maybe learn how to love and companion with people who are so different from them. Maybe the people that they've been taught to hate, maybe that is how they experience the kingdom of God. So Jesus chose Simon the zealot, 
a, a zealot is someone who wanted to violently overthrow the Roman government. He called Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector, the Jewish person who was taking money from brothers and sisters and giving to Rome. And Jesus said, perfect, you two, together, let's do this with one another. And you know what? They learned along the way how to bring the kingdom of God, and they did it. I personally used to believe the work of the enemy was to move us into the wrong thought. The work of the enemy, I used to think, was to get us to believe the wrong thing, to trade truth for a lie. And to be honest, I do think that's what the enemy often does. But I have wondered if the enemy's strategy is not merely to move people to think differently, but to throw gas on the contempt that we have for one another. I wonder if the demonic in our world is how easily we cancel one another, how easy we kick each other to the side and do it with religious fervor. That for me seems like if the enemy can get us to move further down on that posture line, that is what breaks unity and that oftentimes is what gives Christians an awful name. When I reflect on the Gospels, it's interesting to notice what upsets Jesus. Surprisingly, I don't see Jesus get flared up that often when people don't get it right. Why? No one got it right. I mean, even after he died, he still was teaching them. Like, <laughs> this is what that meant. Jesus doesn't seem to get really fired up about getting, uh, meeting people who didn't see it eye to eye with him. But what Jesus gets really frustrated with is a misguided posture when people made, uh, had settled into being self-righteous, being prideful, when people with ease judged and dismissed others, especially, especially those who were vulnerable, those who were marginalized. That really upset Jesus. Jesus stood up to it again and again and again, specifically with people who were the religious leaders who were obsessed with what? Being positionally correct. That was their religion, was like to figure out what does it mean to be right. And in their rightness, they were lost. They were absolutely right. They were checking the boxes on a test that didn't really matter. Why? Because their hearts were far from the way of God. In their righteousness, they were lost. And it's not that Jesus didn't care about truth. He did, of course. Nor is it the call for unity is a call for us to water down all of our beliefs and just kind of meet in the middle. No, I don't think that we should be flipping about that. But what, is the, what does the Bible say about someone who has all wisdom, has all wisdom and can speak words of angels but have not love? It's a resounding gong. You know how annoying that is for you? Let me do it again. You know who has fun doing that? One person in the room. Me. Thanks, Bryson. I actually feel like I'm pretty good at that. That's the, that's the sound of someone who is right in everything but is without love. It's a clanging gong. It's not a part of any deeper song. It's not being orchestrated by God. It's just someone flailing and feeling great about it. It's not a way of unity. It's a clanging symbol. 
And this is not merely on the positions we take, but more importantly, this is about the posture we take, especially with those whom we disagree. If we can have a community of different points of view, we might actually learn to practice all the different one another's that we find to be commandments in our scripture. The unity that we seek is to stay connected to others whom have a different point of view and to do so with grace, with humility, with compassion. I want to be clear about this once again. This posture does not mean you have to leave your convictions or accommodate with culture. Instead, it is a calling to hold your convictions with grace and with humility and with empathy as you come to the table with all of the body of Christ is to bring that as well as the openness for others who are pursuing Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe if we start doing that, something surprising might take place. Being a part of a church like that might actually train us how to be people of love in this world, a world that is all over the place on people's ideas, positions. Being a part of a church like that might actually help us embody the good news, not based on convincing others to arrive at the positions we are taking, but to sharing the truth that out of, a, out of this good news that we can hold a posture of love and compassion as we extend Christ's kingdom into this world. Civil rights lawyer and activist Brian Stevenson, he calls this the power of proximity. He speaks about it in confronting racism, but I think that's also uh, powerful in a lot of different ways. When we have a community that's centered set around the way of Jesus, when we have a community that we hold a posture of unity, not just a positional sameness, what we do is we actually provide the opportunity to move closer to one another. Like, I can actually get closer to those who I might see things differently. And as I get closer, there's this transformational power that's released. When you get closer to one another, I have found in my life, especially with people I might disagree with, it is hard to see the image of God at a distance. But when I get close to one another, it is impossible not to see the image of God in someone else, the dignity, the value that God's given them. This is that transformative power that happens through proximity, especially with those who have been oppressed and hurt. There's power that comes when you set aside your, your, the binder of beliefs and convictions, set aside for a second, and just get close to someone who's suffering and ask, how? How did this happen? How can I help? There's transformative power that takes place then. Yes, Jesus had positions. Yes, he was the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm sure folks could have plotted him on that, on that uh, horizontal axis over and over again. But I think he probably moved. He moved along that horizontal axis. But one thing remained consistent. He always had the posture of love, of mercy, and compassion that was consistent. He met people all over the positional spectrum with a definitive and consistent posture. And that is the calling that we pick up as followers of Jesus. And that's the posture that I'm going to extend to you, an invitation to you. So um, in closing, I, we shared a, a similar message um, with this a year and a half ago when our church first rolled out our discerned posture, this third way thing. 
And I was curious about what it was like when to share it a year and a half ago. And so at my dining table this week, I stopped and I listened to a message, the message that I shared a year and a half ago, and I was moved to tears. Uh, and it wasn't because my preaching was awesome. <laughs> um, I was moved to tears um, because at that point, it felt like Jesus was leading us to something um, unknown. Uh, this were concepts and ideas that we weren't sure how it would take. And honestly, it felt like a big gamble for us to live into it. But I was moved to tears because this is no longer a concept. This is no longer just an illustration or an idea. This is something that we're embodying with one another. And if I'm going to be completely honest, it, it actually came with a huge cost. We lost a lot of people over this because a lot of people desire uh, positional sameness and unity. And I have I've learned to continue to my, my posture of empathy and grace in that. But it's been really challenging for us to live into it. But I was moved to tears not because of the pain, but I was moved to tears because uh, how encouraged I've been that this is no longer an idea. This is our shared reality. And I've seen what holding this posture towards one another has actually proven. I've seen how it's grown my faith. I've seen how it's I have learned from people who I see differently because we've had this space with one another that's sacred where we can actually learn from each other. I've seen how it's gathered people like you. Many of you have found your way to the vine because you're attracted to this posture. You feel like it's something that you're being invited to. And I have seen more than anything else that this is part of our church's witness in this world. What does it look like to fight for unity to be fight for being marked by the love of God in the midst of so much disdain in this world. It's been hard to live out, but I believe wholeheartedly this is the path that Jesus is inviting us into, to toss aside all the banners of contention and tribalism in our world and to be clothed with compassion and grace and curiosity and extravagant belonging for all who want to be a part of the sacred experience with one another. So may we continue to clothe ourselves with Jesus, with the posture that he demonstrates, and perhaps we'll continue to find a different kind of unity. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.